This past April was the 100-year anniversary of the entrance of the United States into a horrible conflict called World War I. In that conflict that took two years, and from our perspective, we lost 116,516 men. But when the war started in August of 1914, there was dancing in the streets of Berlin and London and Paris and St. Petersburg because everyone said without exception that no one will be able to stand against our men and our armaments. We will have a very swift and clear victory in a very short war. I've got a couple of pictures of people dancing in the street in London as they rejoiced in this and then in Berlin, we'll show this, there's a large gathering of people that were celebrating. There's a circled person that's enlarged, and that's a man who would go on to be a highly decorated corporal in the German army. His name was Adolf Hitler. It's 1914. But this horrible war, uh, senseless war, uh, before it was all over, these were the fatalities of men killed in these various countries. England, if you can't see it on the screen very well, but England, a country of 46 million, lost almost 1 million men dead. France, a country of 40 million, lost 1 point, almost 4 million men dead. When you count the wounded, it's a 6 million. Staggering, staggering. Germany, a country of 67 million, lost 1.78 million dead. And as I think about this war, and I thought about the dancing in the streets and how it was going to be a short war, the, 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 the thought that comes to mind is that, that, that we need to be sober-minded. There was a Secretary of uh, Foreign Affairs in the British government, a man named Edward Gray, and as England declared war, he stood at his office and he looked out, and a friend heard him say this under his breath and became one of the most famous statements of that era. He said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. And he was right. Because World War I sowed the seed for World War II and the horrendous bloodshed of that war. 55 to 60 million killed. World War I, 15 to 17 million killed. But as I, th I thought about that, I, th I thought about our attitude to this issue of spiritual warfare that I'm addressing and how we're fighting a enemy that wants to drink us down. He's, the Bible calls him a roaring lion in 1 Peter chapter 5. And that's why I gave you this quote by John Calvin two weeks ago, where Calvin says that we, we face an enemy who relentlessly threatens us, an enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess and of crafty wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon. Therefore, we should fight him with unceasing labor. And, and so the, the two preliminary statements are this, is we need to be very careful about being oblivious or dreamy or unaware of the warfare we face. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says this, starting in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, God may exalt you. He says, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God gives grace to the humble. Number two, you, you cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So you give God your worries. And this, then listen to this. Be sober-minded. 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So be sober-minded. Be people of sobriety. Realize that you're in this pitched warfare that will not abate until you die and it's ongoing. So first, the first preliminary word is don't be oblivious or dreamy or unaware of the situation we face. There is a battle right now going on for the attention and the obedience of your hearts and your minds right now. I believe historically the Bible teaches and church history teaches us that worship and prayer and the study of the Bible and the gathering together of God's people is a primary means of fighting the devil. We're, we're doing spiritual warfare as we worship, as we sing. The devil hates music, so we sing. So don't be oblivious. The second word is, is knowledge. Walk in the way of knowledge. And I gave you this diagram that, that we fight continuously the world and the flesh and the devil. And those three strands come together. And where one begins and one leaves off, we don't know. But hear this. I believe it's possible for you to take the Scripture and to know the Scripture and to know how the devil operates and, and to exegetically deal with the passages and yet be unaware of your own trigger responses that cause you to fall into sin. The Puritans preached many sermons, I've never preached a sermon on this issue, of the importance of self-examination out of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. The importance of examining yourself and knowing your heart and, and knowing your inclinations and knowing your personality types. So, so I believe we can know the work of the devil and not know ourselves. Conversely, I believe we can know ourselves and not know the worldly system. We're surrounded by a worldly system that is different today than it was 10 years ago in good ways and bad ways. And we need to be aware of what's going on around us in our culture, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. So, so we can be aware of ourselves and not be aware of the culture or not be aware of the enemy. So, so we need to know ourselves. For example, there are people here We'll never be done with sin until we die. There are people here who's one of their triggered things, one of their issues is they just get angry. You have, you're kind of quick-tempered. Some of us don't struggle with that. So if you understand that's your propensity, then if you're in a situation that's leading to a combustible exchange, you walk away. You just say, I'm, 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 I'm gone. Other people here. Struggle with the issue of lust. And so you're very careful with, especially the incredible uh, internet issues. You're, you're very careful. Others deal with gossip. You just, you know, it's, you're, it's just, and I see, so if you're in a situation where it's beginning to go into character assassination or maybe he said, she said, you say, you know, just stop. I, 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 I'm not going to go there. Others, pride. And so people start complimenting you and saying nice things about you and saying you're better than somebody else. No, just, just give God the glory and press on. I mean, it, it, it's, it's issue after issue after, but you have to know yourself. Some people struggle with the issue of weight gaining, obesity, for example. Now, if I will just tell you this. I am not a donut guy. Donuts have no thraldom in my heart. Now, homemade cookies, Pies, oh man. Donuts, walk away from a plate full of donuts. No big deal. 
But whenever I walk into a Krispy Kreme donut shop, my taste buds explode and my mouth starts watering. And I don't like donuts. So if you are a person that deals with weight and you, wait and you, you like donuts and you say to your friends, you know, I, I like to go to Krispy Kreme every morning and get a cup of coffee and read the newspaper. Now, I don't eat their donuts, but I sit there and I read the newspaper and drink coffee. You know what you call a person who does that? Stupid. I mean, really. You know, if, if you have a Krispy Kreme fixation, drink your coffee at a kombucha shop where they drink juice made of celery and grass and foliage. You know, the, these, all these millennials drinking kombucha, you know? So just, just go there because there's no temptation there, man. No problem. But you have to, seriously, you have, to, you have to know yourself. You have to know. So, so knowledge. What are the triggers in your life? The issues. I've got my subset. You have your subset. So let me give you four principles on, on spiritual warfare that we've been dealing with. And number one is, if I'm to fight the devil and fight will, I must recognize the authority of the Scripture and the sufficiency of the Word of God. The authority and the sufficiency. See, everything I need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, is here. So I recognize the authority of the Scripture. Therefore, I reject anything which undercuts or marginalizes the Scripture. And I've said this the last two weeks. If there's a, a line here, a linear line, so on one end are people who say, well, uh, I, I'm a post-enlightenment man or woman, and we don't believe in the supernatural. We don't believe in angels and demons. And when Paul wrote Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare in the heavenlies, or uh, 1 Peter 5 was written about the, the roaring lion or the life of Christ where he fought the devil, those were all uh, people who acquiesced to the worldview of their time, but now we're beyond that. So I, I, don't, I don't believe that. And if, if you believe that, the devil has you where he wants you. You're, you're oblivious to that. On the other hand, there are people who go beyond the Scripture. They just go beyond the Bible. And they make statements that are way beyond the Scripture. And, and all I'm saying is I'm going to argue for biblical understanding in this area. So C.S. Lewis writes in the, in the, excuse me, the screw tape letters that I'll quote in a few minutes. Uh, he says that the devil equally is thrilled with a materialist who denies him, or a magician who, goes, who undercuts the glory and power of Christ, they're both equally thrilling to him. A materialist or a magician. So I mentioned this last week, a couple of examples. If you have some well-meaning friends, and they're well-meaning, but they go beyond Scripture, and they say, well, I mentioned one man who said last week, I read, I read him years ago, he said, I, I cast out the, the demon a fingernail biting. You go, where does that come from? Well, there's a man who was a pastor in the Dallas area when I was in seminary at a Word of Faith church with his issues, and he said uh, he would cast out the demon of nicotine. Well, 
so you just go, well, who was the demon of nicotine before tobacco was around? We're just kind of bumping around out there doing his own deal, and he had nothing to do for a long, long, long time. I mean, but, but when people make those statements, and we don't challenge them lovingly, say, you know, where do you get that stuff? Where does the Scripture teach this stuff? And if we don't challenge them and pull them back to, to the book, then we're undercutting the authority of the Bible. So I think we need to be graciously encouraging as we say we believe that the Bible is authoritative and it is sufficient to address my issues. So you stay in the book. Stay in the book. The second reason the authority of the Bible is very important is because it focuses me on that which is central and it brings me back to the glory of the cross. Now, there's a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. And I'm going to read part of letter 12 in this book. Again, this is supposed to be the devil writing. And in this passage, this particular letter, the, the devil is talking about the nothing. The, the nothing are legitimate pleasures that overrule in our lives. Okay? The nothing. He says, and, and nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins. Sweet sins like adultery and murder and theft and uh, lying and character assassination, whatever. But in a dreary flickering of mind, over it knows not what and knows not why. And then he goes on, he says this in the same letter. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you are able to separate the man from the enemy or God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light out into the capital N, nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Now, I, I think that's incredible. I, I, so what he's saying is that, is that the, the safest way to get people into hell is through legitimate pleasures that rule their lives. It's called idolatry. You know, I, I've been thinking about this, and I, I thought about one application for me as I study this is that, is that I, I'm going to go on a media fast. I'm serious. Uh, let me tell you, I, I have a tendency at night to sit down with my iPad and go from website to website and podcast to podcast and not read good books and not talk to my wife and just be absorbed for, for two hours, really reading the same articles that have been regurgitated on different websites that I read the, the hour and a half ago. And it's a waste of time. For me, it's my Facebook. It's my Facebook. It's an old man's Facebook. I don't care about Facebook. I don't know how I spell Facebook, but that, that's, that's my issue. Because that can have a tendency to take away precious hours that could be used for something else. Or sports. Sports can become something that just, just overwhelms us uh, through our attention, through our thoughts. I mean, one thing I've seen develop just in, in our community here is this, is our Sunday sports leagues, which I think are from the pit of hell. Really are. Sunday is the Lord's day. And these parents that run around the AAU leagues and to develop their child to be the next great Olympic athlete on the cover of Wheaties, that type of thing. 
I mean, they, they need to be in the Lord's house with God's people on the Lord's day. And, and so sports, I'm going to go on a sports fest. I'm going to make a commitment to you to not watch any sports till August 28th. <laughs> I'm going to give up curling, synchronized swimming, cricket, nothing till August 28th. And then I'm, I'm going to break that fast, man. I'm just so excited. But, you know, that, you, you, you do certain things so they don't have a binding authority in your life other than Jesus. Even 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 7, a passage that is very interesting to me, talks about a marital intimacy fast. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you know, husbands, your, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your wife. And wives, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your husband. Then he makes this statement. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time sexually. That you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-command. So even in, in marriage, you, you, for a season, give yourself to prayer. And he doesn't answer how long that season is. In my opinion, it's really short. I mean, it is so short, you don't even know what's happening. I mean, but you, you know, you, I'll joke. I mean, there, there is, I mean, that's, that's a statement saying, you know, to show that you're committed to the living God more than meeting your sexual needs in marriage. So, so I just, I think it's, it's, it keeps me focused. It's, there is a... An old hymn called Trust and Obey, written in 1887, and it goes like this. Um, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. For the glory he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. But this is the third stanza. Listen, we, can never, we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. Boom. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. Lord, nothing is more sacred to me than my relationship with the living God. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my, my, my life, my, my energies, my, my pursuits, legitimate pursuits. For the, the favor he shows and the joy he bestows on for those who will trust and obey. Richard Baxter, an old Puritan, died in 1668. A good friend of John Bunyan said this. He said that the end of it, the obeying of God, is the pleasure or the pleasing and glorifying of our maker, redeemer, and sanctifier, the triune God, and the everlasting happiness of ourselves and others. And so, I said, I want to obey the Lord and be centered on Christ and be aware of the devil's ploy to pull me away with legitimate pleasures. And I'm going to say, I don't want the devil to rob me of the joy that is mine only in the reality of Christ. I'm a joy stalker, a joy hunter. So that's what I've got to do. The second thing. Not only do I have to stand under the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, but secondly, I need to rejoice in the power of the cross and my position in him. Now listen, Satan, the Bible tells us, is a liar and an accuser. 
The Bible says in Zechariah chapter 3 that we'll look at and Revelation 12 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses you by saying to you, I can't believe you claim to be a Christian and you had that thought, or you're a Christian and you had that issue, or you're a Christian and you fell into that abuse again, or a Christian. So there, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And you, you fight him with the authority of the Bible. In Zechariah chapter 3, the next to last book in the Old Testament, this is how, what happens. It says this, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Boom. You know, or oh, King James says, a brand plucked from the burning. I, I, I put him out of the fire. He's mine. And then it says that I, he put a new turban on his head and took away his filthy robes and clothed him with clean, beautiful garments, which for signifying what Jesus would do for us on the cross. But Satan accuses you. Listen, when the devil beats you up and you're a believer in Jesus, you go to him with the scripture. There's a man named John Wesley. John Wesley started Methodism. He was 5'3", 125 pounds, and he was a dynamo. John Wesley was one of eight children in 1709. He eventually had, I think, 15 or 16 brothers and sisters. But he was at home, he was five years of age, 1709, and his older sister, Hetty, was in bed, and all of a sudden she woke up because some burning material from the roof fell on her bed and woke her up, and the bed caught on fire, and she started screaming. Woke her mom, who was in the last stages of pregnancy, and her dad, who was in another room because of probably trying to give his wife some space, and they quickly saw the house was engulfed with smoke. They grabbed all the children, they tried to pull them out, and. One uh, servant grabbed the hand of Jackie Wesley, John, who's five years old, and was pulling him out of the house. And when the little boy saw the fire that had to go through to get out of the house, he pulled back and went running to his room, and the servant couldn't go because they were, she was in the Gulf of Smoke. They went outside, they counted all the children, they knew that Jack wasn't there, and they started weeping. They said, there's no way we can go in and get him. One of the neighbors looked up at the second floor and saw this little boy looking out the window. And so there was no ladder. They couldn't have time to get a ladder. So two men lifted up. A taller guy held his feet, and he took his hand and broke through the window and pulled this five-year-old to safety one second before the roof collapsed on that room. And as they wept and held each other, Wesley's mom, who was a godly woman who loved the Bible, said, This, my son, is a brand plucked from the burning. Literally. That's why she stayed the rest of his life. Remember, you're a brand plucked from the burning God. Boom. Listen, that's true of every child of God here this morning. God in mercy. Boom. And so when, when, the, when the devil comes to accuse, and he will, it's a truth encounter with the Word of God. So when the devil accuses you, I, I would, for example, go to Colossians. We've been studying Colossians the devil accuses in verse 13 of chapter 1. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You say, we know, Lord, I thank you that I have been delivered from the domain of darkness by the work of Jesus on the cross. I belong to you. I thank you. Devil be gone. Or verse 12, it says that giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance. Say, Lord, thank you that you've qualified me by the cross. It's not what I've done. It's what you've done for me. I'm yours. Devil be gone. Or you go to chapter 2, or still chapter 1, verse 22. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Lord, I thank you that I am fully reconciled to you in the heavenlies because of the fleshly body of Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. I mean, go on and on. Or chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Jesus Christ, the ultimate mystery of God. God, God, thank you that you are the ultimate mystery and that I am in you. Thank you, Lord, that I am, it says in chapter 2, verse 7, that I'm, I'm rooted in you, which means I'm established and cannot be moved. And I'm being built up and established in the faith. Thank you, Lord. Therefore, I abound in thanksgiving. Devil be gone. I belong to Jesus. Or chapter 2 and verse 13. And, and you who were dead, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive in Christ. God, thank you that when I was dead, you made me alive in Christ. I don't understand it, but you did it. I belong to the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Devil, be gone. That's what you do. And so, so we rejoice in our position. John Wesley's brother, Charles, who was one year of age when the fire consumed the house, ended up writing the, one of the greatest hymns of Christendom that says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. That's it. No condemnation. <laughs> Glory in Christ. So, this past Monday, uh, Dave Bruner asked Sarah and I to go to supper with two of my favorite missionaries who happen to be in town. They're from North Africa, and I'm not going to tell you their names because what they do is sensitive, but they've been there for years, and they're just faithful just love people. They train young pastors to go back to their communities in various countries in North Africa to build the church. They're just delightful people. So they're going to be in town for a couple of nights. Can you go out to eat Monday night? Absolutely. So we went out to eat and had some great food and it's just fun to be around them. So we were there probably in the restaurant for probably a little over two hours. And uh, an hour and a half into the meal, I, mean, I really enjoyed them. But an hour and a half into the meal, you know, my, my back's hurting and the and the seat is hard and the food is gone. It's a bad combination. And there's a huge TV over here to our left. So I was, I was trying to listen, but my attention span you know, cannot always be great. You know, I love these people. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, sports classic, Clemson at Florida State, October 29th, 2016. I went, sweet. So I'm trying to listen but I'm doing this a lot. And went to the bathroom, just kind of lingered in the hallway for about five minutes, you know, that type of thing. True story. Well, if you don't remember, let me tell you what happened. So last year, Clemson goes to Florida State, ranked third in the nation. Florida State's always outstanding. And uh, I was on the West Coast with my son. We watched the game in a, in a restaurant because there was no TV. We were in the outbacks of Washington. So... First half, Clemson just comes out. They should have put the game away in the first half. They were, they were heading to their third touchdown to make it 21-0. Interception, fumble, 
so Far State got back in the game. I said, oh, no. Second half, Far State comes out like gangbusters, goes ahead 28 to 20. I think it's over. 84,000 people in the stadium. Most of them are doing this, you know, karate chopping the air, whatever they do down there. And uh, I thought, it's, it's, it's over. Nationwide TV, it's, 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 it's over. And so I, I couldn't eat my food. I was sweating. I was nauseated. You know, it was just bad. And then Clemson goes ahead. Far State comes back, goes ahead. Clemson scores, two-point conversion, 37-34. Defense holds, incredible victory. Great victory. But I mean, for the last hour and a half of that game, though, I was in incredible turmoil. You know, on Monday night, no big deal. We're ahead, or Clemson's ahead, excuse me. 14 to nothing. Interception, no big deal. No big deal. Far State comes back, 28 to 20. No big deal. Nah, no big deal. You know why? I know how it ended. I can watch a tape delay months later and go, no problem. See, I read the Bible. You know what? I know how it ends. We win. Satan is mortally wounded. Jesus has paid the price. We win. So I, I'm able to go through life saying, Lord, you, you're even taking my stupidity and my sin, and you're going to turn it around and mock the devil by saying, I'm going to use this in his life. We win. Now, if that doesn't make you want to get happy, nothing does. We win. We win. So, so I find my position, my hope in Christ. That's how I fight the warfare. Devil be gone. I'm in Jesus. He's in me. I mean, there is this union with Christ. Thirdly, for to fight well, we've got to be people who, who continuously understand that God gives grace to the humble and to those who gladly submit to the authority of His Word and His people. Beginning principle from last week, that, that God continuously gives grace to people who walk before Him in humility as they run to Christ. In the book of James, Um, chapter 5, there is this statement It says this. It says, is anyone among you sick? Verse 14, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so, so we do that here. We anoint people with oil and we pray for them in the name of Jesus so they'll be healed of their afflictions or their dis- discomfort or whatever. And we, we trust the sovereignty of God. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, 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 we believe that, we do that. And then it says this, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So, so we anoint people. We believe that. So that's part of the community, part of the community. Then it says this, very interesting. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you have in the body of Christ some friends, an elder or two, 
that you can confess your sins to in such a fashion that Satan doesn't get a foothold in your life. One of Satan's biggest ploys is to say to you, you are the only one who's dealing with that issue. You're the only one that has fill in the blank. Every person here deals with sin. Every person here has a subset of issues that I think changes from age to age, stage, stage, stage to age, stage, that you work with that can weigh you down. Therefore, you confess your sins to one another so that you will be strengthened and healed. And the devil wants you to be segmented and feel like, I'm the only one, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. That is a lie from the pit of hell. So I need people in my life that I can have the freedom to say, listen, because that's, the community is God's way of protecting and encouraging and building us up. I'm never done with sin. When Paul says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think he's talking about himself as an apostle and the man who wrote 12 or 13 books of the New Testament. That's the apostle Paul. I need people in my life. I'm having a procedure this week, no big deal, but... uh, I got a phone call Friday from a wonderful young nurse from this doctor's office, and she asked me 400 questions. I mean, it was like, oh my gosh. Yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, 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 no. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to liven this up a little bit. And she says, Mr. Brown, is there anything domestically that's happening in your life that would cause you to be emotionally overwrought as you have this procedure. I said, yes, I'm married. <laughs> Dead silence. I said, and let me tell you something, I'm married to a woman who occasionally is mean. <laughs> and I am always mean. And we have problems. I said, no, I, we're, we're doing okay. 37 years, we're, we're, ups and downs, but we're okay. Let me tell you, if I lived by myself, I would have domestic turmoil. You know, Mr. Brown, how tall are you? About 6'1". Why do you weigh? I went, okay. 430 pounds. <laughs> Dead silence. I said, no, I'll tell you, I mean, just, I was just, I told my wife, I said, I did that. I thought I'd light, live, lighten up her day. She said, do you know how many people do that to that dear, dear woman every day? I said, didn't think of that. I thought I was unique, you know. The last question, true story. Oh, this is true. It's just too good to be true. It's true. Last question, Mr. Brown, do you have a religious preference? <laughs> Softball, right there. Just tee it up, baby. I said, well, here's my preference. If you're going to have a chaplain visit me, even though the preacher's procedure is supposed to take 30 minutes, I got it. As long as that chaplain believes that there is an eternal God who is trying on his glory, who in the fullness of time became a man and lived a perfect life. His name was Jesus, and he died on the cross as my substitute, and he rose victorious over death, and he ascended to God, and he's coming again to call history to a close. 
and I am made right with that God by faith through the finished work of what he did on the cross. His name is Jesus. As long as that chaplain is around, send him or her to me. Dead silence. Yes, sir. <laughs> then Latin said, I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a Baptist pastor. I just, you know, I just who I am. But I, I, the, the issue is, you know, do you have domestic turmoil? Oh, yeah. One of the questions was, do you have any children or a dog at home? I said, praise God, no. They're gone. Now, part of my domestic issues has been gone. You know? I'm never done with sin. I'm never done with grace in the most dear relationships. I need the grace of Jesus. And I've re- got to realize that God continues His grace to the humble while He opposes the proud. Okay. Fourthly, I need to revel in the fact, don't miss, don't miss this, revel in the fact that the great creator who is triune in his glory desires our relationship with me. This little phrase in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It just blows my mind. And we, we say that and you know, there's some people here who aren't believers and they're kind of new to going to church or whatever and maybe they'll get it. We believe that the living God of the universe wants to have a relationship with, with us. It's amazing. He, he wants to, he calls us his sons and his daughters. And he embraces us by the cross. And he loves us. And he's our shepherd. He's our guide. He's our, the Bible calls him our friend. He calls Christ our elder brother. And I don't want to miss out on the reality that the living God loves me. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Think about that. So we want to draw near to God. Zephaniah is a verse in the Old Testament. There's a book in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 3.17. This is, this is amazing. And this is looking forward to the coming Messiah King and looking forward to the fullness of the revelation of God. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Just let, let the word speak to you. God sings over you. God exults over you. Some version says he dances over us. He's glorious. He's good. And if you're not a, someone who's trusted in Christ, the invitation is run to the cross of Jesus. If you've been a believer for 50 or 60 years, the invitation is run to the cross of Jesus. 